Today, we're going to do a little bit of self-promotion on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm going to talk about the Sly Flourish Bundle of Holding, a fantastic deal for seven Sly Flourish books that you can get on, hopefully today. The I'm going to do a product spotlight for the updates to the City of Arches, my Patreon-only product uh, that I have available to Patreons. We're going to talk about that. I'm going to do a product spotlight for a fantastic tool called Kenku FM, which brings music and sound effects to your online D&D game. And we're going to do a Kickstarter spotlight for the Tome of, B- the Tome of Adventure design, an update to the Tome of Adventure design, a uh, very popular pile of random tables that you can use for your for your various rpgs and we are going to cover the first set of april 2022 patreon questions all today on the lazy dnd talk show i'm mike shea your pal from sly flourish this is the lazy dnd talk show this show like all of the work of sly flourish is brought to you by the patrons of sly flourish if you want to help support shows like this you can do so by becoming a patron of sly flourish the link to become one is in the show notes below and we're going to talk about one of the big big exclusive products that patrons are getting. I had a wonderful opportunity to partner with the folks from the Bundle of Holding to do a Bundle of Holding for Sly Flourish's books. So right now, available until I think it's the 16th uh, of April. Is that right? What's the day? 10 days from today. It's the 20th, right? 10 days remaining. 20th of April. You can pick up seven Sly Flourish books, including Sly Flourish's DM Tips, The Original Lazy Dungeon Master, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, so I think this is eight books, Ruins of the Grendel Root, Fantastic Lairs, Fantastic Adventures, and Fantastic Locations, all with their art and map packs for $20. It's a fantastic deal. For the price of Fantastic Layers and the art book. For the price of any one of these four quote-unquote fantastic books and their art books, the retail price for those is $20. For the price of any one of those, you get all eight eight books in PDF. And the response has been amazing. People people have been jumping all over this. The deal has been going very, very well. It's been, it's been wonderful. So I'm very excited about this. And it's really the best opportunity you have to pick up these books. If you have not picked up my books in PDF, even if you've picked up some of my books, if you own some of these, really... This is the best way to get all of them. And if you did pick up some, you have like, hey, I've already picked up Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master like twice. Go ahead and give a PDF copy to your friend, right? You can you can go ahead. I give you permission to take a PDF copy and and, and give it to your friend. And yeah, it's just it's just a fantastic way. If you own all of them, I want to thank you for the support that you have all of them. But you can let your friends know that this is a fantastic way to get on board as well. So yeah, really outstanding deal. Uh, very happy with it. Very happy with the response. And I wanted to mention it to you. The link, of course, for this bundle of holding is in the show notes below. You can go click on it by now. If you only want the lazy books, if you don't want the fantastic books, I don't know why that'd be the case. For six bucks, you can pick up DM Tips, Lazy Dungeon Master, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and the workbook, and the art pack for the workbook, the, the map pack for the workbook. If you're only missing the Fantastic series, as Ella Cohen says, this is by far the best way to get the four Fantastic books. Because it's 80 bucks normally to get these four books with their, with their map packs and art packs, and you're getting all four books for $20. So it's a fantastic deal. I suggest picking it up. I have also, this, this past week made a major update to the city of arches the city of arches is a city source book spoilers the city of arches is a city source book right now weighing in about 20 pages it's an evolving source book for a adventure location called the city of arches and the city of arches 
is a place it's a it's a it's a city built for adventure it's a city built for for adventures of all kinds both like if you want a little bit of political intrigue you can do that it's a city built around your characters it's a city that has places for your characters to go and things to do the most interesting thing about the city is that it has these ancient archways these weird old gateways that sometimes reach to other lands and sometimes reach to other worlds and while those gateways don't really operate predictably now every so often somebody will come through the archway from the other side which means it is a city it is a, a metropolis of different races and origins that can all exist here when people come through the gateway they often don't remember where they came from so in many cases quote-unquote evil races are here and don't have any memory of ever being evil and they the city welcomes them and brings them into the city it's a really cool place it's a it's a, a product i've been now working on for about three or four months right? And pieces of it have been coming out over time. But I just put out a major update uh, to the City of Arches this, this past week. And the, the biggest part of this is that I reached out to... So one of the things we've had in the City of Arches... Oh, spoilers. I'll get back to that in a second. Is a beautiful city map done by Chloe Ballard. Chloe is one of the cartographers who worked on the maps for the Lazy DM's Companion. And I asked her if she would do a city map the top view city map for the city of arches and she did and it's gorgeous i love i love this map and i said you know what would also be cool what if we did a side view cutaway of the city because one of the interesting things about the city is that it's very high and very deep there's a lot that isn't on the surface and that's where a lot of the adventures take place and so i got out my ipad and my pen and i sketched out a uh, a side view a side view cutaway kind of like the old school cutaway maps that they used to have in old DD adventures i said wouldn't it be cool wouldn't it be cool to have that and so I reached out to Chloe and talked to her about it. She said, yeah, that would be very cool. Show it to me. And so we did it. And we we're like, this is great. And then she's like, you know, this is going to be big. And I was like, yeah, that's okay. Right. And see, it might be two pages. I'm like, we can make that work. And we did. So now inside the city of arches, inside this source book is a two page spread of the cutaway so this is the left hand side of the map and it shows the catacombs up above the city and the lost warrens these these places deeper beyond the catacombs where adventures go there's a skeletal dragon and stuff like that and the the cisterns below and where things where things go and all the old ruins and archways and old sunken ships there's tons of detail in this side view cutaway map that you can really get into that's the left side of the map and then here's the right side of the map all the things that exist below the city itself right so i have the two page spread in the pdf but also patrons have access to the full-sized resolution version that is the the whole map in one big one big image i have the i have the, the the view of it here so you can you could get it you could print it out on large format paper if you wanted to it's just and the idea here is really just grab the imagination of dms who are going to run things here it's an abstract map this is not a hard map this is a soft map this is ideas to give you about what are the different adventure locations that exist below the surface of the city of arches right and all kinds of things like hey who's that guy and you know what's going on and what who are these like you know these different things here now so as part of this because i was building out these new locations behind here 
uh, I added descriptions of these regions, uh, some of these regions that I had not talked about to the city of Arches itself. So in the location section of the book, there's notable locations. I've added a few new locations from the previous version of the city of Arches, including the endless Warrens. And just like everything else in the book, every location has a hook that you can use to kind of generate an adventure for it, right? And this idea is like you can really grab it and run with it. So the Endless Warrens is a section that's sort of behind the catacombs. And I gave like level areas, like this is probably a good area for levels third through eighth level, but some of them can go as high as 16th. You can go and there's like dragons and stuff. There are, let's see what are some of the other locations. The Lost Cisterns, I filled out a little bit more. That's kind of the, the weird sewer system that exists underneath the city. I talked about that. The lower reaches is even beneath the city. And then I, I got a little bit, let's see, Market Square, Public Baths. Those are all existed before. So I added, I wanted a little bit of Dark Soulsy kind of stuff in here. So I started giving things more, more, more proper names, right? So the Sunken City of Rethria, right? The Sunken City of Rethria is actually, if you look here, this is the, the right underneath the city is this area called the Lower Reaches. And the Lower Reaches is where it's sort of a, a habited city. It's a little bit of a seedier part of the city. But underneath the Lower Reaches is the sunken city of Rethria, this lost city, right? This city that is mostly destroyed. It's getting crushed underneath the, the, the ceilings above it, filled with monsters, you know, monsters plus like, you know, seedy organized groups that are willing to live and reside with, with dangerous monsters. So that's the, that's, you know, that's called the, the sunken city of Rethria, right? Which I thought, you know, was a kind of a neat, a neat place. So I was happy to do that. I expanded the Theater of Whispers a little bit. The, the Forge, which used to be like the, the Devil's Forge, is now called Vathrix's Forge, right? And nobody remembers why it's named Vathrix and who Vathrix is. Maybe Vathrix is that crucified demon that's down there below. The Vaults of the Nameless King is a high-level area. This is this area I added that talks about down here in this lower, the, the, the lowest level of this is like the Vaults of the Nameless King, right? And that's really some of the lowest levels where really, really dangerous. This is like your tier three, 11 to 16th level adventures go on there. So those are all er things that I added. I also did another full pass through to kind of clean up some language and to make sure that all the connections are there and that names were, were all set. And now the, uh, oh, I also added the City of Arches Player's Guide is now included here. Page 16 has a player's guide. You can take that one page and give it to your players. If you're running in the City of Arches, it kind of tells them a bit. And I did a two-page City of Arches Adventure Generator. So these are tables that are added to the City of Arches that you can roll on to generate adventure. I rolled on these tables yesterday and ran a four-hour adventure for my friends. And it was really a lot of fun. You'll notice that these tables are very similar to the tables that exist in the Lazy DM, the core adventure generators from the Lazy DM's Companion. And the reason why is that the city of Arches isn't, it's, it was designed to be a city of adventure. So there's not a lot of stuff that can't be in this city, right? It is designed to hold a lot of this, which means a core adventure generator tables actually generate a lot of the kind of stuff that you would find in the city of Arches. So because the city is so flexible in, the, in its design, that means that I didn't need to do a lot of tailoring around the tables to get them to fit. So that worked really well. And then, it, of course, it has a first-level adventure to get you on your feet, a two-page first-level adventure, the Obsidian Skull. So this 20-page product is available right now only to patrons of Sly Flourish, and you can get access to it right away. If you become a patron of Sly Flourish, you pick it up, you get access to this. You also get access to a whole bunch of other exclusive things. Um, there's a bunch of adventures that I've got there. There's Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, which is sort of like the Lazy DM Companion Director's Cut. A bunch of different things that didn't make it in the Lazy DM's Companion are available to patrons. And access to a, disc a dedicated Discord channel, all kinds of great stuff that you get for joining the Sly Flourish patrons. So I wanted to show that off. This is 
two patrons, I want to give you a preview of the new updates to the City of Arches. Please go check it out. Uh, I really love it. I've really had fun doing it, and and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Let's talk about somebody else's products. What do you say? The folks at Albear Rodeo. Albear Rodeo is my favorite tabletop virtual, my favorite virtual tabletop, right? Albear Rodeo, if you have not seen it, Albear, I think it's Albear.rodeo, right? Albear.rodeo is a really wonderful virtual tabletop. Let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll load up one right now. Hey, look, I, I have a map where you can drop in a map, you can drop in custom default tokens. Wow, that's a big map, right? And you can set up uh, a virtual tabletop in literally a few minutes. I did it yesterday. I, I hadn't done all the prep I should, and I threw a map, and we started using tokens in a virtual tabletop in minutes. It's really, really fast. It is a lazy DM-approved virtual tabletop. It is easy to use. It is free. It is wonderful. Uh, I love it so much. I back the Patreon for the folks who do Owlbear Rodeo. Well, they came out with another tool, again, fitting the same style of like, what's the easiest way we can get some capability to you that works really well. And they created a tool called Kenku FM. You can go to it at Kenku.fm. The link is down in the show notes below. It is a pay what you want product. So you can buy now. I I think they offer $5, but it's a good $10 product. If you're paying once, it's I, I think even doubling that amount. I'm going to, I haven't paid for it yet. I was testing it out and I want to try it before I actually drop money on it. And also I backed their Patreon. So I figured I've been giving them money, but I'm going to give them 10 bucks. Definitely. Cause I think it's a fantastic tool. So Kenku FM is a thick client tool, i.e. you have to download software to your desktop PC. They have Mac clients, they have PC clients. Uh, You run that client on your local PC. Inside this application, uh, it sort of is treated like a browser window. You can can load music from local sources. So if you have Apple Music or something like that, local, probably Amazon Music, you'd run remotely. But if you have local music on your machine, you can stream that local music through this player. You can also use it like a browser window and go to like YouTube or go to tabletop, or my, my, my favorite, what are they called? Tabletop. Oh, I forgot the name. I can't believe I can't remember their name. What's the really cool tabletop music place? You can go to Tabletop Audio. Tabletop Audio, I also back their Patreon. Fantastic set of 10-minute looping audio tracks that you can use to build atmosphere for your game. I haven't used a lot of music or a lot of background audio in my online RPGs because it's just one thing too much. It's just, I, I'm already busy. I don't want it. And I, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time with it. And I always worried that like, am I pushing music to players and I'm screwing up the audio on their side and they can't hear anything, right? And that's a real problem. Kenku FM solves a lot of these problems, and I'll talk about how. So you can take like the Tabletop Audio website, you can paste the URL into Kenku FM, and you can pick one, and it will start broadcasting through Kenku FM. The cool bit is when you connect Kenku FM to your Discord server, a lot of us, myself, and I think a lot of people use Discord as their way to communicate with their players when you're running a online RPG. And you, what you do is you set up a with Kenku, this is the only tricky part with Kenku FM. This is the one part I was like, I don't know, this is pretty fiddly, right? And it is a little fiddly, but they've done some great job of, of talking about, which is how do you get a Discord token? And what you're essentially doing is creating a Discord bot, your own Discord bot that sits on your Discord server and brings music from your Kenku FM player into Discord. And it treats it like it's a new, it's another member of your list of people that you're listening to. You will see your bot show up as one of the people that you're listening to. And the music will be streaming in over that bot. It sounds really good. The audio quality is really, really good. And the nice thing is because it's added like another player, all of the other players can 
mute them if they don't want it, or they can use the volume slider to get the volume of the audio just to their pure specifications, just to what they want, which means players, DM, D, GMs don't have to worry about tweaking it too much for the players, and the players can tweak it on their own, including turning it off if they don't want it on their side. So for the player's perspective, there is nothing they need to do. It's just added like another member of the group. But that tricky bit is getting this Discord token. And so they have really good like animated little little movies that walk you through how to create an application. You're essentially like setting up a developer tool and getting a bot. It took me about 10 minutes to go through this process. I had to follow their, even though I've, I've built Discord bots in the future and I'm pretty technically savvy, still like I wanted to walk through this and make sure that it was, it was easy to do. And it is a little tricky. So basically you create a bot, you, you give it a name, you have to give it certain settings so to make sure that it will operate. You tell it what it's able to do. Again, they talk all through the instructions here. The instructions are not tiny, but they're doable. And you set it up, you add it to your server, and then you give the, you have to go get your, your key for this server, right? They show you how to get your, 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 your key and then paste it into your local Kenku FM client, right? And when you have that, when you have that Kenku FM client set up at that point, anything played through your local Kenku FM client goes to discord. Now, a truly laser, lazy, a truly lazy trick for this, which I did for my Numenera game, is I asked one of my players if they would be interested. I think she actually volunteered. One of my players, Juliet, said, hey, would you like me to manage this for you? Would you like me to sort of DJ the game? And I was like, yes. Oh, yes, would I? So she downloaded the Kenku client. I sent her the key through a private message. She took the key and pasted it into her and Kenku FM. And now she was broadcasting to the channel, right? And I could control it on my side and everything like that. But that way, she controlled the music. And it was great. She has playlists on her side that she uses for her game. She's a DM too. I think almost every, I think everybody, I think everyone in my Sunday group is a DM, which is really nice, right? So... You know, she was acting, she was very, very, the laser DM, the lazy DM. She was very active in doing this and, and it's been great right now. I get to enjoy the music. The players get to enjoy the music and one of the players is managing it. So check out Kenku FM. It is the best way I have tried to get music to stream to other people without them having to do anything. The real nice thing about this and same way with like Albert Rodeo and these tools is that from the from the player perspective, there's almost nothing you need to do, right? In this one, all you need to do is really tune the music where you want it to be. You don't have to worry about anything else. You don't have to download anything on the on the player side. They don't have to do anything. And that is a really effective tool. So check out Kenku FM. If you're looking to add music to your Discord server when you're running your D&D games, it's the best thing I've seen for it. It's excellent. I'm going to use it all the time. You can try it. You know, one thing you do if you're not sure is try it. See if you get it set up. If you do, come back and buy it, right? And they're offering $5. I think it's worth more than five bucks. I, I think it's easily a $10 tool. It's really, if you if end up using it a lot, it's like a $30, $40, $50 tool, right? Like if you use this every week and you use it for a year and you're, there's no subscription, you're just, you're, you're buying it, right? Then I think it's 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 a really good tool. So, so pay for it. And I'm going to do so. I'm going to do so today. Tome of Adventure Design. So the Tome of Adventure Design has a long history right? The, the Tome of Adventure Design, this is the original Tome of Adventure Design, which is available, I think there's two versions of it already. It is written by uh, Matthew Finch. Matthew Finch is big in the OSR, the old school Renaissance movement. And it is a huge book, a 300 page book of tools and tables that you can use for really any fantasy RPG. And uh, yeah, it, it's been it's been around since 2009. It has a very big, dedicated, dedicated following. 
and a huge table of content. You know, here's the table of contents for all the different things, locations, missions, plans, you know, the list of tables, monster types, general monster tables, all kinds of stuff in here. Designing a dungeon adventure, mysteries and clues. Hey, look, mysteries and clues. The map, tricks, traps, dungeon dressing, things like that. Great big thing, primarily focused around random tables. And I am a sucker for random tables. I love random tables. Uh, I find them to be really useful. I find them to be a wonderful creative tool. I think that whenever you're kind of stuck for an idea, grabbing some random tables and rolling on them is a good way to go. And this is why I wrote the Lazy DMs Companion, right? I wrote the Lazy DMs Companion as a book of random tables that were all focused around particular themes that you could use to help build parts of your, of your game. This is definitely, I mean, it's three times bigger, six times bigger, roughly. It's roughly six times bigger than Lazy DMs Companion and the number of tables it has. And it's got tables for everything in here. So I'm going to jump to one section. Uh, we're going to jump to the dungeon design section, 135. Let's go there. Let's take a look at this. So designing adventure, yeah, good, good descriptions about how to, how to do it. Big picture backstories, like who, who, what, what's the backstory? There's a lot of D100 tables. Most of it is deep, you know, capsule backstories. What are some relationships? You know, lots of neat things. And then gets into what are the things you actually want to have. And you can see like how, how big it goes, you know, who's the clue to whom, what's the bit of interest. You can roll on each of these things, how do messages appear. Very, very in-depth tools for all kinds of things. You know, great, great big, great big tables of all, look at this, like weird, you know, weird symbols, generating riddles. The map, building building maps, like the, you know how to arrange how to arrange various areas. You know, the whole sort of role to generate a, a dungeon layout is is in here. I tend not to use like a role for, for a dungeon layout because I can just grab a Dyson map and then I have a nice layout and that works almost every time. I've been I don't think I've ever been disappointed by going to. Only time I've been disappointed going to Dyson is that he doesn't have a lot of boats, and sometimes I need boat maps and there's only like two or three. So huge list of tables and so so they are updating the tome of adventure design in a new kickstarter that gives you a physical physical version of this and i think i have a physical copy but it's like a paperback glue bound paperback and this is a way to get a big hardcover thread bound version of these lazy tools 500 plus pages so it looks like it's going to be 200 pages bigger smith's own binding you know with 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 actual you know a sewn binding for the book black and white interior, all kinds of stuff, 400 different tables printed in the USA, right? $50 for the book to, when you get it over, when you get it over, when you get it over Kickstarter. They have a sample here. There's a sample PDF. They're doing the thing I, oh, why? Where you have to like add it to a cart and buy it. Just, just link directly to it. Don't make me join your thing. But you saw it. You saw the old version of it, right? And so I can tell you that the new version will be very similar. But this is a great way to get a physical one. What I like about this Kickstarter and the reason why I backed it, you can see I backed a hey, 50 bucks for a six, what do they say? 500 page? That's crazy cheap for a hardcover book, even black and white. And the other one is because it's system neutral, this is a book that like, if you are into fantasy RPGs, you can use for the rest of your life. Version doesn't matter. You decide, you know what? I like Pathfinder 2. I'm going to go with Pathfinder 2. You can pick up this book. If you know any version of D&D &D from OD&D, &D, AD &D, all the way to all the way to fifth edition, you know, a 5.5, whatever's coming in the future, we know that this book will do it. So even though I already have a physical version of this book, uh, I'm like 50 bucks for a hardcover threadbound version. I'm I'm on it. So I backed this Kickstarter. I think it's really cool. My only my only complaint, my only stipulation, it's not really a complaint, but it's a, a style thought. Is like 
500 pages of random tables is a lot of random tables. And it's not the kind of thing that's really easy to use, like right at your table, because there's so much material that the depth of the tables is so big. And this is why on one side, you have a 500 page book of random tables. On the other side, you have the Lazy DMs Companion. Could I have made the Lazy DMs Companion 128 pages or 256 pages? I could have. I don't think 256 pages serves the same purpose that a book of 64 pages does, which is why the tables, there's like a reason I have a random table generator in the Lazy DMs companion that's one page and it's it's one page to make it easier for you to roll and be done right i don't want you to spend a lot of time so the i really spent careful thought about the resolution of every one of the pages that exists in the lazy dms companion to make sure that it was a story unto its own that each one of those pages had all of the things that it needed on one page you could just use it and you're done and when you have a book that has you know, 400 random tables, you're not going to remember them all. You're going to have to go through the book, which means it's probably a pretty good book when you're doing prep, when you're thinking about what you're going to work on, when you want ideas, it's a good thing to go through, but it's a lot of tables to go through. And it's a lot of stuff. And many of these tables you're never going to use. Many of them have very minute resolution on things where it's better off to pick. The example I'll pick, which is, you sty again, stylistic. It's not, a, I'm not saying one was right or one was wrong. Lots of people have done the tables for how to, including the Dungeon Master's Guide, fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide and many previous Dun Dungeon Master's Guides have had like the role on these tables to generate the layout of a map, right? I've seen it done a bunch. I've seen Bruce Cordell did it for Numenera in a book that he did. It's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. It's in the, it's Tome of, the original Tome of Adventure Design. It's in these books. And I've never found that to be particularly useful because it's like a lot of roles to like set up a random layout. And you're like, the layout still isn't great, right? And that's why it's like, go find a map, right? So like the Lazy DM's Companion and the Lazy DM Workbook have maps in them that are already built. And just grab one of those. You want it to be weird? Flip it, flip it horizontally, flip it vertically, and you got a different style of map. You know, but, but trying to generate a map takes a long time, and I think the output isn't great. Right. So that's where the stylistic difference is here. Colin says, have you ever seen the tables in World Without Numbers? I love the tables in World Without Numbers. I think I I think I did a preview of World Out Without Numbers before. World Without Numbers is another that's an actual full RPG in a book. But one of the things that that RPG does is world building through random tables. And what I like about that one is it, it uses a handful of dice, including like a D12 and a 20. And you roll all those dice together and it rolls on all the different tables simultaneously. And it builds this whole sort of bit of fiction, whatever it is using one page with all the different dice rolls. I was very jealous of that idea. I looked at that and I was like, that is a really good idea. That idea of using like all of the polyhedron dice together in one roll that generates a thing. That's in World Without Numbers, which is also worth checking out. If you, if you, if you dig random design, random development for RPGs, definitely check out World Without Numbers. It's a fantastic, it's a fantastic book as well. So let's look at some patron questions. Mark C says, I just picked up the Dark Souls RPG. And while I think there are significant problems with much of the book, you get, you get your little free editorial in there. I like their variant on initiative. Each encounter has an, in, an initiative DC determined by the most powerful monster. PCs who, who beat this DC are fast. Those who don't are slow. Each turn, all of the fast PCs act in any order, then all of the monsters, then all of the slow PCs. This seems to collapse a lot of the work of initiative tracking and cleans up many cases where players need to be ready actions to coordinate. What do you think of this as an option for 5e? I think it can work just fine. This is actually very similar to how Shadow of the Demon Lord does initiative. They have fast and slow turns. Everybody, I don't I don't think you roll and that one you just choose whether you want to go fast or slow. So that's another you want you want to get rid of initiative completely. Say you can only say if you want to go before the monsters. This you could kind of house roll this into 5e, I'm pretty sure. If you if you want to go before the monsters, you can do so. You either get a move, an action, or a bonus action, but not all three. 
You might change it to say you can do an action and a bonus action, but you can't move. You can't move and do an action at the same turn, right? And and if you want to do that, you go fast, right? And then you, you have fast characters, fast monsters, slow characters, and slow monsters, right? And that way there's no rolling for initiative. You choose, you know, when do you want to go? Do you, are you going fast or slow? Are the monsters going fast or slow? And then that doesn't have any different version. Another way to do it is like I use static initiative for monsters. I just say like their their initiative is a DC of 10 or 12, depending on like I look at their decks sometimes, sometimes I don't bother. And uh, characters who roll above it get to go before. Characters who roll below it get to go after, which is very similar to this, right? That can work uh, very, very well. There's little fiddly bits with characters choosing when they get to go to try to make certain abilities last longer or to try to prevent certain detrimental effects from affecting them by delaying their turn because things happen at the beginning or an end of a turn and if they can push that by like if i can do that after the cleric i'll survive if i have to do it before the cleric i die if you worry about that, that would be a concern. That may not be a concern. The other thing, though, I would say is I don't know that this necessarily speeds it up. Uh, I think it works well when you have probably four characters. If you have five or six or more characters, if you have more than six characters, you've got other problems. But if you if you if you have more characters, it's harder to you know people are going to forget when they go. Did I already go? You know, oh wait, didn't I take a turn already? Like especially turns take a long time. People might forget that the, when when they took it right, and there's no list that shows who went when. So and then the other one is when characters when players are deciding who goes before who that conversation can take time so when they're busy strategizing and they might be strategizing about something that doesn't have any real effect in the game anyway but you're sitting there waiting for them to decide who's going to go when when a role would have just determined it to begin with so i'm not sure that this is actually faster it's different and it changes the tactics a little bit but I, I I don't know. I what I really like is if is using static is using static initiative for monsters. I don't I, I try to use as much static stuff for monsters as I can. The only thing I want to roll for is their attack roll, right? I, or, or saving throws, I guess. I'll certainly roll their saving throws. But initiative and damage and stuff like that, I just use a static number and it works it works really well. The other one is online. I've been using the DD encounter builder a lot, and the encounter builder has now made initiative really, really fast because I can roll for monsters with a single click and all the monsters roll. When the players roll their initiative, as long as they're part of the campaign, that initiative score score goes dropping into the initiative order and now that runs the only problem with the D, &D encounter builder for running it is that you can't share the initiative order with your players i have to either tell them or i have to take screenshots i got a bunch of kludgy ways to show them what the initiative order is i really wish there was a way for me to share the output of the initiative order with the players in D, &D encounter builder friends from D, D beyond if you're listening please add that to your list thanks mark Darren says, what is the best way to run a game in Eberron? Holding on to the gritty crime noir political intrigue themes laid out in Eberron, I'm not entirely sure if it's better to stay in Sharn or expand outside the city. I've read some of your campaign outlines and would like to build one for a future Eberron game. I So I ran a... 14 month two different 14 month eberron campaigns recently i ran them for two different groups i used the same campaign arc for both groups but the, cam the campaigns definitely went in different directions and i really thinking back it's now been more than a year it's probably been almost two years since i ran my eberron it's been at least a year certainly more than a year since i ran my eberron campaigns and I really liked how I did it. I, looking back, I was very pleased with how I did it. And I don't think I would change. If I was going back, I don't think I'd change very much. 
And what I did is I did half the campaign in Sharn, up to about level six in Sharn. And then I moved it out of Sharn and we headed to the Mornlands. You don't have to head to the Mornlands necessarily, but heading to some of the, the, the wilder areas like Zendrek or Arganesson or some of the other cool locations that exist in Eberron so that the first, you know, having like the first half of your game in Sharn and then the latter half of your game out in the wilds, I thought was a great way to bring all of the different things that Eberron brings to the table into play in my campaign. Because you want some of that interesting political intrigue, these different factions that are at play and all this kind of stuff. And Eberron, and Sharn is such a cool city. But once you get to like six or seven, you probably, you know, like, could you run a tier two, tier three adventure there? You could. But I think it's more fun to go to some of the more dangerous areas where a lot of the old wilds are there and kind of see the other parts of Eberron. And I think shifting, doing like part of it in Sharn and then part of it out of Sharn. And you could go back and forth if you wanted to, if you have airships and whatnot. But I really like, I really like that style. I really liked of having like good first half of the campaign in Sharn and then the second half of the campaign exploring the wilds. That worked really well. So that's what I would recommend. And yeah, the, the political intrigue in Noir, you can you can bring that in even when they're in the wilds. It could still be these these other political groups like the Orem or the other Dragonmarked houses can have, have components in the wilds as well. So that can work well. Thanks, Darren. J-A-B-D says, I am new to the lazy DM methods. Welcome. I hope, I'm glad, I hope they're working for you. And I'm a Kickstarter backer for the companion. Thank you very much. And for being a patron. You are, you, thank you. Thank you so much for all your support. And we'll be using your tools for a new Numenera homebrew adventure. Yay, we're talking all about Numenera. I'll be running for our group. And my question is, when it comes to adventure design, what are your thoughts about using the five traditional elements of storytelling, specifically introduction, rising action, climax, falling action, and resolution? Do you use these when you're plotting out the major beats of a goal-driven adventure? I don't. I don't use these. I don't really keep these in mind. That said, I think they have wired themselves into my subconscious and we we, we do it anyway. I have a feeling that DMs, I'm making this up because I haven't done a study, but I, I think many DMs, I know myself included, and many DMs that I've that I've worked with, they, w- once we start to see things that are working, we we lean in towards those. And once we see things that aren't working, we kind of push those away, right? Where our games evolve as we run them. We're seeing what's working. We're seeing what's making us happy, what's making our groups happy. We're seeing what's not. Then we we work with this, right? We, we're learning. And I think what that means is we lean towards things. The whole idea of upward upward beats and downward beats, for example, from, from Robin Law's Hamlet's hit points. And I've talked about upward downward beats and upward beats and downward beats a lot one of the points of the book is eventually you just start doing this eventually it's second nature and you're not even thinking about upbeats you're just oh yeah good things happen bad things happen good things happen bad things happen right you just start to think that way in the same way i bet you that many dms who have studied it who kind of you know many many dms who are running games and are studying the reaction end up close to this model which is you want to start off your game. You want to have interesting things happen while, while the game goes on. You want to have a cool conclusion, a good climax, and then you want to taper down. Now, what I would say that's interesting about it is like when I, I ran a one-shot game yesterday, right, for my for my for some friends of mine, and it certainly fit this model. I had a strong start. You know, I would I, I can change these. Instead of an introduction, I have a strong start. What's the thing that immediately like James Bond? Does James Bond have an introduction? Yeah, it's him like riding in a car with a villain in the trunk while dudes are trying to kill him right? Like that's an introduction, right? It's like, well, it's James Bond. So I like, you know, if you think of the introduction as a strong start and then rising after like, what are the scenes that take place after that strong start? The climax is like, what's the big boss? What's the cool location where this takes place? And then the falling action and resolution. The interesting thing to me is that these are not, it's not like a nice, perfect, normal distribution curve. Instead, it's rising, rising, rising climax. And then it falls off in the last two steps, the falling action and resolution. I bet you most DMs handle that in about 10 minutes, right? And that when I ran a four-hour game yesterday, 
We spent a fair bit on introduction because it was a one shot. I wanted to go through like a mini session zero. We wanted to talk about the characters and who they were. And then we got into the, 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 the strong start and the rising action and that all went. And, and, and that, that strong start and rising action, those first three and certainly the fourth was 90% of the game. And then 10% of the game at the end was you beat the boss. Here's the conclusion. Here's some treasure. And here's the main choice you had to make at the end. And then it's done. So I think the interesting thing about that, those five steps, I think they work fine. I don't think I would like any model. I wouldn't hang on too tight. Right. I mean, it's, you know, all these things, including the eight steps from return to the lazy dungeon master. These are not hard rules. You don't say like, well, I'm going to do them. They don't work for my game, but I'm doing them anyway. These are all things that we just keep in mind. They're models that are that can be helpful. And this one is a model that can be helpful. It's interesting to think about this. It's more interesting to look at this and then reverse engineer adventures that have worked well for you and say, do they fit this? And ones that didn't, do they not fit this? And why? Then I think it is to say, okay, I got to have, you know, my introduction. I've got to have my rising action. I got to have my climax. I've got to have my, my, my falling action. And I've got to have my resolution. Particularly if you make those last two too long, People are, I think people are going to tune out because like once you beat the boss, if, like assuming you're doing like a one shot game, the minute you beat the boss, it's different. The other one is I don't think that this model fits when you're running a longer campaign. I think that if you try to do every session like this, it's going to be too procedural. It's going to be too, too rigid. And instead, sometimes like you have a whole session where it's just crawling, crawling through an area and it's still fun, but you might not have that you know, that falling action resolution. Instead, it might be you're getting to the climax and then right before the climax, you end the session because we're going to start with the climax next time. Well, now the climax is scene one, right? So I think that that can change things. So JBD, welcome to the world of the Lazy Dungeon Master. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope that uh, answered your question. Zach A, have you had friends who aren't player characters run factions or powerful NPCs in your game? If so, do you have any tips for how to set everyone up for an enjoyable time? I have done this and I have not had great results. And the reason why is that often the players who are running like NPCs, they're not driven by the same thing that I'm driven by as a DM. It's not necessary. Oh, JBD is here. Hey, welcome. Welcome to the Twitch channel. I'm glad you could glad you could be here. And I hope that answered your question. If you have follow-up, you feel free to, to, to ask follow-up questions in Twitch since you're here. Um, so I've tried to have players run it and their drive and motivation is different than mine. As a, as a GM... I'm here to make sure the players are having a good time, right? That I'm, I'm driven by this idea of like, I want to help fuel this awesome story we're all sharing together. And when you bring a when you bring a player in, they're like, I want my creature to do certain things, or I want my NPC to do certain things. And like, when a player runs a monster against the other players, like they're like, I'm going to go kill them. Right. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look at the tactics and they might not be thinking like, how do I run this monster so that it's cool? They might be able to. And if you have players who like our DMs, again, I've got a whole group where everybody in it is a GM. They might be able to run that way. But I still think that, I bet you that they would still kind of like their piece is small enough that they might run it like a character. And that's different than when you're running it like a like a DM. So. You know, so I think that that is a, there's a reason why I typically don't do it. I'm not saying it doesn't work and I'm not saying don't ever try it. It's the worst thing ever. Try it and see. And if it works really well for you, that's great. And maybe if you, if it works really well and you've seen it, uh, you follow up with me and tell me more about how you did it and how you were able to deal with that situation. But in the, in the times when I've tried it and granted, it's been a long time. I don't think I've even done it in fifth edition. I think I did it in fourth and fourth was a whole different beast. It didn't really work out because the player that was running it ran it like a character and they were not thinking about like, how do I make this most interesting and dramatic? as possible they were thinking like no it's it's all over the place or they're thinking like i'm gonna do what this guy's gonna do regardless of the fun that everyone else is having 
Vance D, if running theater of the mind, how do you engage your players with tactical decisions during combat? Or should tactical combat only be limited to play with a map or miniatures? It's a good question. And 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 I think this is one where like, go with what you and your group dig. Go with what you and your group enjoy. And I think I know that when I'm running a complicated situation, I tend to jump to tactical combat. I'll use a grid or I'll use I'll use maps and minis, right? To help kind of show all of the different components. The more complicated the situation, the easier it is to handle it with visuals of some sort. Now, maybe you're just hand drawing some stuff on a piece of paper and showing it to people. Maybe you're using your my favorite Albert Rodeo. Maybe you're just you're like, I'm using miniatures, but we don't really worry about the grid. I do that a lot. I say, don't worry, don't count squares, right? I don't need people counting squares. You want to get up to the guy you can get up to the guy if you can't i'll let you know right and but yeah sometimes it's like well the, the tactically side for it now i think you can run tactical combat particularly from the player perspective in theater of the mind with the recognition that the that the player and from both sides that the that the dm is there to help the player succeed with the cool stuff they want to do and the number one thing that can help with that is for the player to describe their intent and for the dm to draw their intent out of them what are they trying to do and an example of like a tactical thing where it can really matter is you say i am a polearm master sentinel right i have two feats polearm mastery and sentinel and i want to stand and an example of intent through theater of the mind is a bunch of orcs are, are charging your group and the and the sentinel this the sentinel polar master says i want to stand in front of the wizard i'm going to stand next to the wizard keep the wizard behind me but near me and when those orcs come in i want to hit the very first biggest orc who's coming our way i want to hit him with my polar master and if i hit him on the way in using my polar mastery feet i want to pin him down so he cannot do it and if that doesn't work if anybody attacks the wizard and i haven't pulled that off I want to attack that person using my polar mastery feet or using my sentinel feet, right? And it's really crunchy, but like from the description, the DM can go, cool, the biggest, baddest orc goes charging at you. Roll your polar mastery. And he's like, I hit, oh, look, I hit him. I do 10 damage, great. And you slam him in the knee and he crushes down. He's like, oh, you bastard. And he's sitting in front of you yelling at you because he can't move any more forward, right? And you're like, you stop the biggest one and all the other orcs have to like, like, you know, come around him because he's in the way, right? So you can do tactical crunchy stuff. The hard part is getting the players and you don't want to do this like question and answer mother may I sort of thing where they're like, how far is the orc? And you're like, he's 20 feet and charging at you. Is he the biggest orc? And is he going to get to me before anybody else? He might. Is he, if it would, I, if, if I'm able to stop him, can I, and instead just say, what do you, what do you want? Right. And cause they're looking at their sheet and they're like, what do you want? Well, I want to, use this combination and especially if you can talk to the players before combat has ever begun like you know early on and be like what are kind of the tactics you like your character to do oh i like to hide i like to find something to hide behind you know sneak try to not be seen and then pop out and shoot with my bow and get my sneak attack with advantage okay very good and then you could say like hey by the way in this room there's a lot of cover that you can hide behind while this crazy battle is going on cool i want to do that right so there's there's lots of opportunities to work with the players to describe the tactically bits in narrative without necessarily dropping to theater of the mind but the number one key is to a be trusted by your players to work on their behalf to let them do all that do that cool stuff and the big question is what are you what are you what's your intent what do you want to achieve what do you want to do right what is your hope for this situation draw that out of them and then and, and you're the dm you can build the situation to support that so if they say like well i wasn't expecting that the biggest orc was going to run in i thought it was just going to be like a normal one you can change it and be like no the big orc runs in you get your if they wanted that to happen 
you know, let them let them have the cool bit, change things around so that they get to really use their ability. And when they see you doing that, they'll trust you more in the theater of the mind. They won't start holding their cards close to them. And that gets away of the antagonist and the thing. All that said, if you really want to get into crunchy tactical combat and you like your grid, I am not saying don't use a grid. I am a huge proponent of theater of the mind, but not only I don't I have piles of Dwarven Forge. I have grid. I have a grid that's been on my table for two years when I haven't been playing online because I'm not going to take that grid off the table because I like it. So I play gridded combat. I play theater of the mind. I play all of the variants. I use uh, Albert Rodeo. I use all this stuff, right? It's great. So I think it's really valuable to have theater of the mind as one of the ways that you run combat as well as gridded combat, as well as abstract maps, all the different variants, tabletop terrain, no tabletop terrain, quick draw maps, really beautiful maps, whatever you've got. You keep a plethora of different tools to run, to run combat. PhD 20 says, I think you've mentioned having an on-call or backup player players for games. Can you elaborate on how well this works for you? In theory, it sounds great, but I'd be worried that these players wouldn't be available or would prefer a consistent schedule. Yeah. So I've, I've used the on-call list for some time. I've had an on-call list for some time. And the, the number one thing that I can recommend for having... So what's the on-call list? The idea here is I think it's really powerful to have a group of six regular players and two on-call players. And with six regular players that, that show up, that means the most you'll ever have is six. But if three people can't make it and you only have three, you could still theoretically run a game. If you, if you say, like, I want to have four or more, right? then if two of your regulars drop out, you could still run. But then you also have these two on-call players. So you could start calling. If you see two people drop out, you could call your on-call players and be like, hey, can you, I have a game, I have a seat for you. Do you want to play on Thursday or Wednesday? And they say, sure. Well, now you're back to five, which means that it takes five people canceling before you have to cancel a game. If four people can't make it, you can still run a game right? But if five people can't make it, that's the first time you say, I don't have enough people. And that would be both your on-call players have to say it, and you have to have three of your regular players not make it before you have to cancel a game. It's a, it's a robust system. I think it's a, it's a resilient system for having continual games without having to cancel is having this many players. So the problem is, but your on-call players, are they secondary? Like, are they second-class citizens? Because they don't get a regular seat at the table. And the key that I found is you, you have an adult conversation with them, right? That you ask them, when you ask them, you don't say, hey, do you want to play D&D on Wednesday? And they say, sure. And you say, okay, well, you're an on-call player. And you start with, hey, from time to time, I'm going to have a seat free at my game. Would you be interested in filling in from time to time? Right. And, and they could, oh, yeah, sure. That would be cool. And they know right up front and you could say to them why, right? Like I have a regular group of six and we've been playing for a while and they're all pretty regular, but sometimes they're not able to make it. And then you could tell them, by the way, if they're really interested, then, you know, if one of those people drops out or becomes an on-call player, I'd be happy to bring you in as a full-time player if you want. Right. So it, it's, they're not second-class citizens. They're just different. They're, it's just a different style of play for them. And the, the key is you be upfront with them. Now, the other key is some people much prefer being on call because they can't make it all the time. They know they can't make it all the time, which means that they might not be, they will probably be less available than your normal players will be. You're, you're not on call, your, your full-time players would be because they're not beholden to be on call, right? They don't, it's not, you know, they're not always available, which means you're less likely to have them. It's also sometimes where the story is in a weird spot and it doesn't really make sense to bring an on-call player in. But generally what I found, I don't know, nobody has ever come to me and 
I don't, and, you know, I, I try to pay attention to how my players feel, right? How my friends feel about this stuff. I don't think anybody's ever been upset. I know that I have had, and I have players who would love to be full-time, but they understand why they can't, right? They, they, they recognize, I think that like, oh man, you know, you've got a full group, right? And the other one is, by the way, that on-call, it's good to have two on-call players, but there's nothing stopping you from having four or six or eight or 10 on-call players and having a big list of on-call players and just going down the list when you want somebody, right? Because they, you know, you're, they're not missing out because they didn't expect that they were going to be there in the first place. So I, the number one thing is having the adult conversation and making sure that before you even ask them if they come to, come to the game, that you're, you're clarifying what role they're going to fill, which is that role of being somebody that fills in a seat when it's available. Right. And, and, and be nice. Say like, this is why. Right. And it's not because I don't think you're great. It's because seven is too many. The Harry Potter lexicon, whose name isn't actually Harry, uh, who verified this in Patreon. The Harry Potter lexicon says, I recently had two bad sessions in a row in the same week. Oh, this is, yeah, I answered this one right away because I thought this is a Sly Flourish emergency. Recently, I had two bad sessions in a row in the same week. In one session, I made a ruling instead of looking up a random rule and the player involved was angry at me for a week, even though I sent him a text letting him know that he uh, was correct and I'd rule that way from now on. In the other, I was simply un unprepared for the, what the players chose to do and wasn't on my game enough to properly improv, which led to a boring extended battle that no one really enjoyed very much. This led to a week of DM depression. The reason I'm writing is to ask for a little commiseration on this. I know it happens to all of us, so how do you deal with this when it happens first of all and 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 i followed up with harry so i immediately responded to this one because i'm like i don't want anybody to be feeling bad and if i have an opportunity to help make somebody not feel bad i want to do this and i have i have talked about this problem before it's that it's certainly something that everybody everybody faces from time to time and that's like running bad games right and so i i actually have an article on sly flourish called recovering from a bad game and i will link to this i will link to this article in the show notes below and you know, I offer, I offer some things about what happens when you run a bad game. What can you do? And, and all of the advice that I have on this topic hasn't really changed from when I wrote this article back in September, 2021. So that's like six months ago, I think that's give or take. One thing is like, take it easy, right? Like it's not the end of the world and it's easy to let the emotions grab you. I actually talked to, oh, wow, I screwed up my link, right? My, my link is broken. I should fix that. Dr. Megan Connell about this, right? And I think I even emailed Dr. Dr. Connell and my friend, Dr. Michael Mallon, another psychologist. I'll talk about this stuff and say, are these reasonable approaches for how to deal with this kind of thing? And they're like, yes. So relax and get some distance, right? Take it easy. Step away from the situation for a little bit. Take a deep breath. You know, remember why we're doing all this and, and try to take care of it. Now, there are some times where like a bad thing happens in a game that needs to be handled right away. This is sort of a safety, a safety tool issue, right? Like somebody's feelings got hurt. Somebody, something bad happened because of something that happened in game. You don't want to sit on that one, right? You probably want to try to take care of it as fast as you can because the pain can escalate, right? So that's, that's something. But generally speaking, situations like you're talking about here, taking a day or two to just step away from the situation and think about it, you know, and then look at it analytically. What really happened, right? Take your feelings out of the matter and, and take the people out and say, what happened at the table? What really occurred? And what, what needs to happen with that? Or what, what, what occurred, right? Think about it analytically. Try to really think about it analytically. Then talk, if you can, talk to your players, right? Hey, this happened. Not judgmental. You're not pointing fingers at people. You're just saying this happened. And I know we feel this way. I feel this way, right? A very powerful, I feel this way is a very powerful way to handle a situation like this. Talk about how you feel. Ask how they feel. Understand that, right? Before you're starting to like, you did this and I did this, right? Give real non-confrontational language is really important uh, in this and talk and figure it out. 
And one of the things you'll find, which I think you found in this one, is it turned out your players didn't mind that, that second game where they were, you were improving and you thought that they weren't having a good time. Your fun might not have been great, but it turned out they were actually not having a bad time, right? They told you, no, we really enjoyed it. So like a lot of times in this conversation, you'll find out the things you thought were a problem that you thought they thought was a problem wasn't a problem, right? And you can't get there if you don't talk to them about it. But again, non-judgmental, non-confrontational language where you are describing the situation, describing how you feel about it, trying to get, well, what did you think about this, right? And looking at it like taking whatever the thing was and setting it off to the side and then having you and your friends on the same side all looking at the thing to talk about that. You're not talking about each other. You're talking about that. Hey, we had this ruling situation. I know you were upset about it. I, you know, how do you, you know, how do you feel about it? And I know I felt bad that I ruled that way right and 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 kind of dissecting it but sometimes i'm going to have to make a ruling because i don't know everything right and sometimes i'll be wrong and and i know it upset you then and i'll do my best but like you know so and and then the other one is try to get back in the saddle run run more games right like that bad game it'll go away right i've certainly had many bad games right and those bad games i've luckily i've had many 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 more good games right i've had many fun games so even though i've had some bad situations that have come up a few times right recently like in the last couple of years i've had games i look at because those did not go well right they went really really badly and you know we took a step back we talked about it i tried to understand i put some things in place to try to make things better you know and then there are times where sometimes the best thing is to move on that like if you're having i've seen this a lot i've seen this a lot in like reddit posts where people are having trouble with a player and you know sometimes like a group doesn't gel sometimes all the people in the group don't gel well and it doesn't mean anybody's bad it doesn't mean anybody's good styles can be different attitudes can be different drives and motivations to play the game can be different styles of game can be different and it can be frustrating for people and sometimes your game is not the right game for everybody right and sometimes the people are not the right people for the kind of game you want to run. And so you need to work with that. But the key is it's not a, you know, it's, there are no good people or bad people. There's no people that are being disingenuous, hopefully, right? And 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 it works. And, and you know, take, take, take that step out and go. So, you know, and then try to, like I said, try to get back. Bad games happen. They are what they are. They're not the end of the world. We can recover from them. So, so this article is what I what recommend in this topic. And again, if you want to read more about this, check out the show notes below. It is an important, this is a very important topic. So Harry Potter lexicon, I know that's not your real name. I forget what it is. It's, you said it on Patreon, but I forgot. Uh, I hope that answers your question because that is a really, that is a really important thing. I think that is a great place to stop the show today. So I want to thank all of my friends here on Twitch for hanging out with me today while I recorded this show. I want to thank the patrons of Sly Flourish for helping to support shows like this. Your generosity helps put shows like this on, helps me build things like the City of Arches, helps me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always excited to come to your questions and answer your questions. So I want to thank the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you like the show and you want to help out, you can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter for free and get weekly articles to your inbox and get a free adventure generator tool uh, that you get mailed right to you. Uh, you can, of course, support me directly on Patreon. That's the best way to, to, to support me. You can buy any of my books. Check out that new bundle of holding. Again, the bundle of holding links are in the links below. You can check that out. And of course, you can subscribe to my videos right here on YouTube. So thank you all very much for hanging out today. I hope you enjoyed the show and get out there and play some D&D. &D.